You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you back on this week's edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. I have the honor of speaking with industry leaders on a regular basis. I always learn something new when I speak with them. And I recently attended a Next Chapter board meeting held in, at the New York City headquarters of EY. Next Chapter is a leadership community dedicated to improving the retirement outcomes for everyone. My friend and colleague Steve Gresham is the managing principal at Next Chapter, and he collected a bunch of folks uh, at EY. There were some 20 industry execs there at our recent board meeting, and uh, some there in person, some uh, who came in online. The host of the meeting is our friend and returning guest, Nalika Nadiakra. Nalika is the EY Managing Partner for the Americas. She heads up the financial services consulting business, uh, which includes wealth and asset management consulting, and is responsible for the tech-enabled transformation of many of the top global wealth and asset management organizations in our industry regarding issues around strategy, growth, efficiency, and innovation. Nalika and I had a very interesting conversation over the lunch EY provided after the meeting. Today, Nalika will share a bit of our conversation. She and I will talk about the distinction between hyper-personalization and digitization. I'll give you a hint, they're not the same thing. And she will also talk about research by Professor Brad Klontz uh, that she has been reading about and uh, something uh, called Money Scripts. We'll talk some more about that. Nalika, welcome back to Wealth Tech on Deck. Good to be with you again. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be back. Terrific. So, Nalika, when we were together at your offices recently, we had a conversation around the difference between hyper-personalization, which I always find to be a bit of a hyped term, but we'll call it hyper-personalization and digitization. You say they are not the same thing. Please explain how they are different and why this is important for your clients and our audience to understand. Yeah, I think as an industry, we have a flawed view of what we mean by personalization, and we often conflate personalization with digitization. For example, uh, when people say personalization, they mean custom alerts uh, for exceeding certain thresholds or uh, next best action and recommendation, or maybe targeted cross-selling based on a specific behavior and action. To me, this is more like functional personalization or digital convenience. What we are missing is the emotional personalization or the emotional side of money. And the reason we miss this often is, first of all, it's really, really hard to do. Right. Second, our industry is very, very numbers focused, right? We talk about portfolio returns. We talk about probability of meeting financial plan, right? But money and particularly wealth is highly, highly personal. But financial services is highly impersonal. So I think there's a little bit of a mismatch in terms of people who go into financial services and work in financial services and understanding the consumer demands or the emotional side of the consumer demand. And the last thing I would say here is 90% of financial decisions are based on emotions. Mm -hmm. So we as an industry do need to get this right. Yes. We're going to talk some more about the emotions, but I want to press in here a little bit on that. So uh, in my experience, I've been around a little while, money's emotional. It's one of those topics that we uh, don't talk about in polite company. We don't so ask someone at the dinner party, at a dinner party, uh, by the way, how much do you make? You just, you know, it's an intimate topic. But I, can I tell you, Jack, in New York, we will say, oh, how much did you pay for this apartment? <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's true. only in New York City, though. That's true. 
Yeah, well, each region has its own way of getting at that number. We're always curious, aren't we? But but point is that it's one of those intimate topics that we're not very good at talking about. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that when you talk about this personalization thing, because I I love that your expression functional, what you call functional personalization. In other words, sort of a next best action that would be true of just given sort of high level inputs and not deeply personal stuff. You're talking about deeply personal stuff. Maybe press in a little bit more if you would, what you mean by that. We're going to talk a bunch about that today, but I'd like to get your your definition of what that all means. Yeah. I mean, let's think through this, right? The current state, when we segment clients, right, all the, whether you're RIA or a big warehouse broker dealer, you have a client segmentation in this world. And it's often right. uh, financial focused. It'll be either, hey, you know, based on assets under management or net worth, or it might be uh, demographics. It's age, gender, profession, source of funds, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't spend enough time thinking about the psychological or the personal traits of the individual. We sometimes talk about risk tolerance, but then, you know, we talk about it and we shove it away, Right. But I think to get to the emotional side of money, you really have to think about new frameworks. There's several frameworks that really dig into this. And one of the frameworks that I've actually been interested in uh, recently is uh, from Professor Bradley Klontz, Money Scripts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Money Scripts are, are unconscious, sometimes irrational biases towards money. These are emotions that shape our financial choices, And I really enjoy how he kind of segments or talks through the different profiles when it comes to money scripts. So there's, um, and again, I'm I'm referring to his research because I actually took the test myself and I found it super interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's four profiles. Money avoidance are people who like to avoid money. They think if somebody's rich, it must have been ill-gotten. So they don't even like to talk about money. Then there are people who are money vigilant. And those are folks who think money can run out at any time. So they're extremely careful with money. And then uh, the two others is one is money status. People who think their net worth is based on their bank account. And then money focus. People who think all their problems can be solved by money. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say it's interesting because when I looked at these four profiles, I didn't see myself in any one of them. But then I actually took the test. And I realized I'm money vigilance. I'm I'm also probably a little bit on money avoidance side because I don't like to talk about money. (laughs) But I will will tell you a little bit of an example. So we bought an apartment in New York City during COVID. Um, Our mortgage rate was 2.75%. And of course, today, that will be a gift, right? So my husband, um, he must also be the same profile as me. We are both very keen on paying off our mortgage. Now, Actually, over the last 12, 24 months, we've been paying chunks of our mortgage off, even though the current mortgage rate is 7 8%. So our advisor was basically telling us, you are being irrational. This makes no sense, yes. right? By the way, between my husband and me, we've got multiple master's degrees. So intellectually, we get what he's saying, <laughs> but emotionally, we hate the burden of the mortgage, Right. So it's really our advisor needs to understand what matters to us, right? So hopefully that's an example of, again, like I don't think of myself as an irrational person. I I think I'm 
very reasonable and rational. But actually, you know, there are things about how our relationship with money that's a little bit interesting based on, you know, our own biases that have been developed over time. Yes. So when you and I spoke about this over lunch at your offices a couple months ago, we were on the topic of listening, I think was where we started and uh, understanding what the what the consumer, what the client, what the advisor, whoever your audience is, what the home office C-suite level person that you deal with, understanding what they're trying to achieve is I think where we started with this. And then you you introduced this this concept of money scripts from Professor, is it Klontz, I think is his name? Klontz, yes. Yeah. And it was like, we both sort of like, oh yeah, it's, you really have to understand it. So when I hear hyper-personalization, it sounds like just a buzzword. But if you're really paying attention to what the client wants, and in your case, paying attention that you are most, you are most comfortable, not irrational, but you are most comfortable in paying off your mortgage, as is your husband. So I'm curious if I'm in our listening audience, or largely people in our industry that are working at at uh, large firms and not so large firms, uh, not so much advisors as people that are B2B professionals. What's your advice? How do you counsel as you're talking with clients about how integrating this whole notion of being uh, much more uh, tuned in behaviorally to what people are looking for? Yeah, first of all, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only framework that's out there. Sure. So you might want to, during the onboarding process, you might want to do a different, not just your you know regular financial planning and risk tolerance questionnaire, but something that gets to the heart of who the person is on the emotional side. Yes. And I would say, don't expect your clients to always be rational, right? I mean, you can have the most comprehensive wealth offer that's priced fairly, um, investments, estate, retirement, but it's only as good as your client's willingness to consume it, right? So our job as professionals in the industry is to really show the clients the trade-offs, right? For example, you probably know this, in the retirement space, there are clients who have an allergic reaction to retirement. If you mention retirement, they just shut off, right? So the way to, and again, you have to understand who those clients are. And then the way to talk about it is not to keep hopping on, hey, you need to think about retirement, but you know, let's talk about the legacy that you want to keep, right? And again, this conversation is really, it depends on a different person. And going back to my um, mortgage situation, right? The low mortgage rate, paying off early. For another person, the conversation might look like, particularly if you're a money status person, if you mark your mortgage to market, your net worth is actually a lot higher than it looks on paper. So this is not a good time to pay off, right? So I think the conversation really depends on how people think through this stuff. And I think it's really important to understand the value of purpose and personalization and how that goes together. And I'll tell you, we've done a lot of research, primary research in in our firm, and we found that more than half, so majority, I think it was like around 52, 53%, are willing to pay more for personalized advice and service. And that number for the next-gen clients is 80%. It's a whopping 80%, right? So it behooves us to figure out, like, what are they talking about when they mean personalized and purpose? And then a large proportion of these clients or investors also say that, Yes, I want to invest with purpose, but my advisor or my financial services firm 
don't get it. And I don't mean purpose is not equal to ESG. I think a lot of times people make this make this mistake of conflating the two, right? Yes. E- even when it comes to the E of the ESG, you know, some people might be very focused on climate action. Others may focus on biodiversity or nuclear yeah. energy, right? I mean, so all these things have a huge personal component that sometimes we forget in the mix because we're always focused on the functional personalization. Yes. So how this all started, we're, we're talking about my favorite topic, which is whether I'm talking to anyone, but particularly if I'm talking to a client, and I think we're birds of a feather in this regard, I want to find out what matters to them. I don't want to narrow it down to what I think my guess or my wish or my, you know, what I, I want to impose, if you will. And it reminds me of, a, I'm sure you know, uh, uh, Riley Etheridge, who was a senior exec at Merrill, way back when he's now at Capital Group and uh, heads up distribution for American Funds, good friend. And I remember he, he and I were talking, this is years ago, at least 10 years or more. And then when they were doing Wealth Outlook, their their financial plan, what they found is, and uh, they did a bunch of studies, internal studies. He worked for John Thiel at the time. I think I've had a similar conversation with John. And what they found is when they the, the advisor sat down with a husband and wife and they had them fill out whatever their questionnaire was at the time, this is a while ago. I'm not sure it's changed all that much, but in any event, it was what they found is that the husband and wife thought differently about money. No shock there, but and one of the things they heard back, and this is early days of trying to figure out how to implement a financial plan. In other words, it starts with listening, finding out what matters to folks. And what they found, it was the advisors were, uh, when they they did this survey, and it was a fairly in-depth survey, the advisors were uncomfortable. They said, we're being asked to play psychologist or therapist with our clients, and we don't know how to do that. They didn't know how to ask the questions. So I'm wondering, how do you advise them? Because we're, we're in agreement, you should find out what matters. But frankly, I'm not sure as an industry, we've done all that good a job of equipping our advisors to ask these sorts of questions. So I love that you brought this up, actually. When I was going through the money scripts, I was thinking, actually, money scripts might be a better predictor of marriage success, you know? I mean, <laughs> yes. Oftentimes, like I've heard research, I've seen research that says one of the biggest contributors to uh, marriages breaking down or divorce is people not agreeing on money, not being on the same page with money. Sure. Yeah, so this it's, again, I, I go back to my initial point in point on, Financial services is highly impersonal. So people who we're used to talking about percentage of returns and, you know, probabilities. So we don't want to, you know, go outside of that lane. So I think it's an important topic that you bring up, Jack. Advisor coaching is a big piece of this. Like advisors being comfortable to having these conversations, right? And it's, again, there's a big difference between portfolio manager and a quarterback and a financial advisor. A few years ago, actually, we did some research and we, we wrote a paper around this. We said our hypothesis was actually the financial advisor needs to be more of a financial therapist. And uh, that's really, I know you and I didn't talk about this before, but it's really in order to understand the emotional side of money and how people make decisions you have to be a bit of a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not about your financial plan making making the numbers or the portfolio, you know, hitting it out of the ballpark, mm-hmm. right? It's I do agree that the next generation of financial advisor will look a little bit different than what we are used to in the past. 
So I'm going to go out on a limb here. I actually, we talked about this as well. I wrote a book called Authentic and Ethical Persuasion, and it's actually based on the philosophy of Martin Heidegger. So it's not psychology. For those of you getting a little concerned, they're getting, Nelka and I are getting all woo-woo on you. In my opinion, it's less about the psychology, and that certainly has a role in all of this. I mean, it just does. But more importantly, what I when I engage with prospective clients, clients, friends, anyone that matters to me, uh, family, I want to find out what people are committed to, what matters to them. And I, there's nothing psychological about what matters to them. But it's, it, the answers are pretty, pretty much always the same. It's family, it's, it's their community, it's faith, it's whatever, whatever is important to them. And, and I make no judgment on whatever they tell me. I just want to know uh, what their priorities are. And then if I'm on my game, and I'm not always, but if I'm on my game, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit deeper about when they say family, I want to know what that means. So I'm not playing therapist. I'm just saying what matters to you. So if mm-hmm. my financial advisor were to ask me, which he has yet to do, which is why I'm going to change. But in any event, he doesn't know about the two grandchildren that I have. And that that for me is financially, those that's most important. My kids are pretty well set. They're all in their 30s. They're all with significant others. They're living their life and doing fine. I, I definitely want to take care of them somewhat down the road, but I'm mostly interested in making sure current and future grandchildren are, are well taken care of just in, around education. That's sort of, if the advisor were instead, by the way, and I've shared this on prior podcasts, he talks about the models that we have in the portfolio. And I, I you know, I'm just, I view that as a commodity. You know, there, it's it's a fine model. I, I know the firm well. I, that's why we're there. I don't need to hear about it. The market goes up and down. They'll do a little better on on the downside, and they'll do a little less well on the upside, and that's just the way I want it. You know, that's the kind of thing. But I find it interesting, and I'm kind of curious because you are dealing with all sorts of firms of various sizes around where do you see this leading in terms of helping the advisor have this kind of conversation? Because my observation is, as our industry underserves this audience, namely the the baby boomers now and the next gen coming up around trying to understand what matters to them and how to get at that. What what thoughts do you have on, on how to help your clients? Yeah, that's really insightful, Jack. Look, I mean, I think the nuts and bolts of it, the models, the returns, as you said, they're getting commoditized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you look out two, three, four years out, you can see how that could be served by a AI, honestly, sure. right? Because, um, and they're less likely to make mistakes. And by the way, they can uh, they can read the human, starting to read humans much better as well, right? Sure. So today, I think the best advisors do this without even thinking about it, right? Because they are people, people, but they also get the, they get the financial and the emotional side of this business. Sure. But in the future, I think it's an existential threat to the industry, yeah. honestly, because you will see AI taking over a lot of this advice that's not the emotional side of money. So if you want to be successful as an advisor, if you have to make that human connection, and in order to do that, you have to really care about the person. It's not just that, you know, it's not a picture of, uh, you know, Jack with his grandkids, education. It's it's not just, you know, something that's neutral or uh, pedantic. Right. You have to care about Jack and what matters to Jack. Totally. Right? Totally. And in order to do that, I think you have to, you may not be able to serve 2,000 clients. Yes. Right? And maybe your AI co-pilot will do all that. And then you will focus on 
the clients that you need to build a personal relationship with. I think it's a must do. I don't think there's any way out of this. Yeah, I'll just pile on here. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that we haven't talked about, be prepared for a shameless plug here, but the other thing that AI will do, it's available now, but not fully implemented across our industry is if you're going to improve outcome, you got to deal with taxes. And it's too complex for the human mind to do on its own. Just we're not built that way. We can't consider all that across multiple accounts and, mm-hmm. you know, the different taxation and so on and so forth. So if you take the the models, which are, are here to stay, it looks to me, for at least for the foreseeable future, and you throw in some tax and risk parameters in terms of something AI can do far better than we could ever do. So what's left? What's left is to find out what matters to that client, what the priorities are, what, what are, they may be selling a business and, you know, nothing might advisor doesn't know at some point, Lifefield's going to get bought. And so what do we do then? And why aren't we talking about that? Because that's something we should be preparing for now. I'm doing it on my own without him. Isn't that interesting that I'm having to do it on my own as opposed to, you know, what I might do with, with him. Point of all that is that if they really understood what mattered to me and what my priorities are, and what my timeline is, it's all the stuff that you really should be paying attention to instead of explaining to me how a American Funds model is better than, you know, PIMCOs or somebody, you know, whoever, DFAs or whatever, it really does not matter. What matters is so what are we going to do about that when there may be another grandchild, when we want to sell our house, when, you know, all the other stuff that has to go into it. So love your thoughts on that. It sounds like we're birds of a feather on all this. Yeah, I think very simply what's left is trust. And honestly, that's the foundation of our industry, right? But yep. a lot of folks have been making money on the easy stuff without focusing on what really matters, which is trust. Yep. So what is your advice to our audience of wealth and asset managers, workplace execs, insurance and annuity providers around creating a useful and personal experience regarding making good decisions in line with achieving a comfortable retirement? What's what's your counsel? If uh, I'm, I'm a senior exec at one of the big firms you work with, where should I be putting my attention and my my emphasis? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I would say uh, three key things. First is, I said this earlier too, don't expect clients to be rational, right? So you have to make sure that you really understand the client's profile and what matters to them, what's their purpose is, right? And then you personalize around that. So that's the most important thing. And I think we talked a lot about it. Second is, I think as an industry, we've gotten a lot better at starting to talk about, you know, financial planning, but, you know, you have to marry the nuts and bolts of financial planning with purpose and value, right? Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that's the second piece because our clients are willing to pay more if we can do that marrying well. And the third piece, I mean, this is a very practical recommendation. I think we've got to get away from the current segmentation models or augment the current segmentation models because, Current models are very much based on functional needs or financial needs. I think we've got to switch a little bit more towards adding in in the emotional needs Mm -hmm. and bake that into the onboarding, advice, and service models. I think those three things are the key takeaways. And is that training, is that part of the what I call the confluence of digital and human advice where those things come together? What, What does that look like in terms of what you're describing? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, even before AI comes into, you know, do some of these, uh, be the sort of the digital advisor, Mm -hmm. that actually looks like you and me talking to a client over the screen, right? Today, I think there's 
there's things we can do to sort of very simply understand the clients better and build a trusted relationship. Honestly, Jack, I mean, it's really back to basics. Yeah. So as, as we look ahead to, uh, to what comes after Thanksgiving, I'm going to be publishing a, a blog on listening, something I've it's really about being seen and heard. I don't know if you've seen the new book by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist. Mm-hmm. He talks about talks about that. And I had the pleasure of flying cross country back and forth over a, a brief period and read the book to and fro. Highly recommend it. But he talks about how important it is to be seen and heard. It's a lot of what we're talking about. Really be known is what he talks a good bit about. And the book I've written is really about the same topic and I've been at it for 40 years. So I guess it, it's, it's in my bones at this point. But as we uh, we look to, as I publish in this in the story, I also uh, am the president of a local not-for-profit, president of the board, and uh, we're raising $46 million to conserve 1,200 acres of land not far from Boston. And our largest donor, a multi-million dollar donor, and I had breakfast, and he proceeded to spend the first half hour lambasting me for all the stuff we didn't do right. And uh, most of which happened before my tenure, but I was, I, I was the person sitting across from him. So I, I made it my business because I knew he was angry to let him talk and to just get what he had to say. Didn't argue, just took it all in. We had already done a lot of what he had suggested, but he frankly was so ticked off at us, he wasn't listening. After listening to him, he's, by the way, some a former executive in our industry, he's long since retired. But in any event, at the end of it, just exhausted himself, complaining and kvetching. And he finally said, I'm negative. I'm too negative. My wife tells me I'm too negative. (laughs) All I did was listen. I just got what he had to say. I got his pain. I got his frustration. And then I proceeded. I said, well, let me tell you what we've done at at your suggestion. And then I ticked off all the stuff that we had done that he had asked for. And because I had hurt him well, because I got what he had to say, but I found out what mattered, which he really wanted us to succeed. He just didn't think we were paying attention. At the end of it, he goes, oh. And he made a two and a half million dollar donation on the spot. I didn't ask for it. I wasn't there to ask for it. We were hoping we'd get more money, frankly, from him. But by listening, by understanding, and the same is true in financial services, if you understand what matters to people, what and for him, for him, it was land conservation and taking care of kids. And that's what we do in this not-for-profit. Because he got heard, because he was understood. He added to it and will make a huge difference because, frankly, we will leverage that donation with many other people of his level. So I I share that more as just an example of the power of listening. It's just listening and understanding. And then our industry knows all the details of stuff. They know how to pull it together. And AI is going to just make that faster and better. But I don't know if you had anything to add to that, but it seems like we're... No, I love it. I love what you said. I, I totally believe in it. I think listening is the portal to trust. And if you don't listen, you don't get to trust. Back to basics. Yeah. Well, as always, now I've great fun talking with you. I always learn something. Uh, we'll have to do this again. We'll come up with new topics, but I have a hunch they'll be around the same kind of topic. So before we uh, part ways, I have a hunch you're active outside of work, although I know you work like crazy. Uh, anything outside of work that you do that's kind of fun, exciting, interesting, people might surprising? I, I know you shared something last time. I'm not recalling it right at the moment, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> look, I mean, um, I think I do a lot of interesting things to me, interesting to me, maybe not to you. <laughs> but, you know, I've gotten really recently much more interested in uh, world history because, you know, okay. our world is, you know, going through, I think, a very interesting time. So 
East, West, um, and and particularly as an immigrant, um, I love the story of America as a you know shining city on the hill. I mean, of course, we're not perfect, but you know, then again, I think that is the American project, right, to continuously improve ourselves. So that's that's one of my more recent interests. That's great. That's terrific. Well, uh, off camera, well, and off uh, off there, our recording has some thoughts on that. We'll share. So. Uh... It's an interesting topic and uh, challenging for sure. So again, thank you, Nalika. This has been great, fun sharing perspectives and uh, I look forward to the next time. For our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, Nalika. Until next time. Really enjoyed it, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.